one really effective way to use our mindfulness, right, is to really uh, wake up from the delusion of our separateness to the direct experience that all is connected and all is one. Welcome to the Holy Sparks podcast. Our mission is to illuminate the brightest lights in the Jewish world and beyond so that we elevate the Holy Sparks within us and make the world around us a better place. I'm your host, Saul Kay. If you're looking for inspiration, edutainment, or simply want to discover people doing amazing things in and around the Jewish world, you're in the right place. Also want to give a big thank you to our sponsor, JLTV, Jewish Life Television Network. JLTV is a 24-7 cable and satellite television network delivering news, history, and entertainment. JLTV brings together the greatest voices from around the country, across the world, and from the Holy Land. Go to jltv.tv for stories that inspire. Okay, everyone, welcome to the Holy Sparks Podcast. Saul K here. This episode is part two of a two-part interview that I did with Rabbi Sam Feinsmith, one of the senior core faculty of the IJS, the Institute for Jewish Spirituality. So to get his full bio, go ahead and go to holysparks.tv. You can listen to the first installment of this two-part episode. And without further ado, let's get back to the interview. Okay, so one question I wanted to ask you, and there's a lot more to unpack here, is, you know, people throw around these terms, meditation and mindfulness, and sometimes they they marry them in, in harmony, and sometimes they're totally disparate. So talk about that. What do they have in common? How are they different? Yeah, thanks. That's a really important question. And yeah, you're right. There's a lot of obfuscation, you know, and it's possible that even during the time that we've been having this, you know, this conversation that I've, I've uh, blurred the boundaries. So let me just be super clear. I'd say, um, in my experience, mindfulness is an innate human capacity to bear witness to, to be aware of what's happening to us in the present moment with a kind of warm, curious, non-judgmental attitude. It's not a Jewish capacity, right? It's an innate human capacity. It's universal to every human being on this planet. Just to say that we can intentionally choose to turn our attention toward and pay attention to our present moment experience. Again, with this kind of warm, curious, non-judgmental attitude. You know, mindfulness can be used for all kinds of purposes. Um, you know, we can become aware of what's happening in the present moment for all sorts of reasons. Mm-hmm. And hold it lovingly, warmly, you know, with a kind of stance of, of curiosity for all kinds of reasons. Say that in a Jewish spiritual framework, you know, the, the kind of teachings of our tradition really posit that uh, one really effective way to use our mindfulness, right, is to really... Uh, wake up from the delusion of our separateness to the direct experience that all is connected and all is one, right? Um, Another way to say the same thing is to experience uh, the divine unity of all being directly. Mm -hmm. And then from that place to experience a great kind of expansion in our capacity to hold suffering and difficulty non-reactively and responsibly, remain steady, calm, balanced, and to feel a real sense of compassionate empathy for all beings um, on this planet. And then to work by extension to try and make the world a more humane, compassionate, and just place. Um, Different traditions use this innate human capacity in different ways. What's important to note is that we don't need any special circumstances to be mindful, right? You can be mindful, you know, um, while driving in traffic, you can be mindful 
uh, while cooking dinner. You can be mindful while at a rally. You can be mindful, you know, while uh, engaging in advocacy. You can be mindful while, you know, being angry. You can be mindful while being happy. You can be mindful while being sad. You can be mindful while being anxious and lonely. And, you know, there's no kind of place uh, in the human experience where mindfulness can't be in some ways brought to bear. Mindfulness meditation, on the other hand, is the practice of actually sitting down <laughs> for a period of time on purpose, on a regular basis. For me, it's daily, right? And choosing to pay attention in that way in a very kind of intensive, disciplined way, moment by moment by moment to a particular intended object uh, of attention. Right? So that could be the rising and falling of the breath, it could be the experience of thoughts moving through the space of the mind. It could be different emotional qualities and how they land in the body. It could be unpacking our sense of self and deconstructing it so that we might recognize that um, our small sense of self is not the whole picture, right? There's actually something much bigger and more innate to us that uh, isn't so limited in its perspective and, you know, and its self-centeredness. It could be, you know, to really train our attention upon the divine, you know, however one defines and experiences the divine. You know, there's all sorts of ways in which during these meditation sessions, we can, in a very intensive way, dial our attention in. I'd like to kind of analogize the difference between mindfulness and mindfulness meditation to the kind of relationship between Shabbat and the rest of the week, right? Mm -hmm. So think of Shabbat as kind of like a little island or sanctuary in time, as Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel called it. Kind of like a little kind of island where you step out of doing mode into being mode. And you really come into the present moment fully because you let go of the to-do list and you inhabit the present moment in a kind of very immersive, deep, intensive way. Right? You can think of Shabbat as like an extended period of sitting meditation. You know, yeah, you don't, you know, you don't really try to, you know, go too far afield from where you are. You try to be really content and satisfied with what you have, mm -hmm. you know, and kind of cut through habitual kind of craving and grasping, you know and cultivate a kind of sense of peacefulness within that experience. You know, that's immer an immersive experience. And you're really shifting into a different mode of consciousness on Shabbat, you know, if you take it uh, and practice it in this way. And then, you know, there's the rest of the week. And we're not in that kind of immersive, intensive Shabbat mind, you know, way of being. But um, the idea is we actually want to infuse that quality of consciousness into everything that we do. You know, so you can think about seated meditation as a kind of mini experience of Shabbat, you know, and then, you know, the rest of the day, you know, is kind of analogous to this, the six other days of the week where we're actually making an effort to be aware of our present moment experience, to be really present, you know, to be really um, contented and curious and warm, you know, in the present moment, no matter what the contours, quality and context of our experience. Uh, so I hope that's kind of a helpful designation. And ultimately, I'd say that that we don't practice Shabbat for its own sake necessarily. We practice Shabbat so that we can then engage more mindfully in the rest of the week, right? And it's the same with meditation. We're not trying to become like, you know, a master uh, meditators, although, you know, there is some correlation between becoming a meditation master and having a high degree of, you know, equanimity, peace, compassion, wisdom, you know, but it's more like, our meditation practice in a Jewish framework is in service of being able to live mindfully. Mm, beautiful. Oh, it's a beautiful teaching. And I often feel that meditation is just a little refuge, to quote Joni Mitchell, refuge from the roads. So like you have a little yeah. bit. Okay, it's the mini Shabbat. So much more to say about that. That was very, very clear. Okay, now 
why should people meditate? Or because I don't like the word should, why meditate? Yeah, totally. First of all, I just want to say not everybody will be disposed to meditation practice and not everybody should, right? Mm-hmm. There are people for whom meditation practice would be counterproductive, uh, depending on their history and social context, depending on their nervous system and its kind of baseline level of regulation. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. meditation can be activating for people who are trauma survivors. Um, for people who are struggling with certain mental health challenges, although the research shows that it's pretty beneficial for people struggling with anxiety and depression when done under the care of a mental health professional. So I just want to say meditation isn't for everyone, and that's not a problem. It doesn't mean something is wrong with you if you're not interested in meditation or if you're not able to meditate in a way that brings you into a place of greater kind of balance and equanimity and calm and joy. What I'd say is that for those who are disposed to the practice, you know, um, at least in my experience, it's a very effective tool uh, for A, stilling and calming the mind, which isn't to say that there won't be any thoughts or any noise in the mind, but the mind can quiet down enough that we can then see deeply into the nature of our, our experience. Because at least my experience, you know, without practice or you know, if I reflect on what my life was like before practice, I was really relating to my experience in a very kind of shallow surface level and making all kinds of presumptions about the way things are and the way that things function in the world based on mostly presumption, belief, and cultural conditioning, right? But then when you look really closely and carefully moment to moment at your experience, you begin to see what's the actual nature of this particular phenomenon. You know, what's the causal relationship between a thought in the mind and the suffering that I feel in my body, you know, or a particular way of being in relationship with this emotion and the reactivity that I experience in my life. And so you begin to really be able to see kind of through to the nature of phenomena in a deeper, more penetrating and ultimately more liberating way. You know, the analogy that I like to give is one that's fairly often quoted in meditation circles. Imagine you were to take a jar and scoop up like the most pristine water from just a beautiful pristine lake or a beautiful pristine river but some silt is also in there you know and if you keep shaking it up you can't really see how clear the water is Mm -hmm. but if you just put it on the table for a couple minutes and allow gravity to do its work all of the sediment settles to the bottom and suddenly you can see wow that water is so beautiful it's so clear it's so pristine it's kind of like that as long as we're constantly moving about milling about reaching for the next thing on our to-do list or the next thing to satisfy you know, our dis-ease and kind of quell the spasms of our inner life. You know, it's hard to kind of really see the nature of phenomena. And then if we just allow ourselves to settle a little bit and the mind gets a little bit more quiet. Sometimes in meditation, the mind can be completely quiet, but that's that's a rarefied experience and that's something we need to aim for or hold ourselves to. You know, but just if the mind can get a little bit more quiet, suddenly we have the capacity to really look deeply and clearly into the nature of phenomena and liberate ourselves from presumptions and habits of perception that keep us in fetters. Beautiful. And I, I also love to use the analogy of the snow globe, right? For those that have kids that have those, you know, you shake it up and, it's, and then it clears. Talk about how meditation has infused, affected, and enhanced your Jewish practice spiritually. And if you want to go larger than that in terms of your Jewish life overall. Yeah, thanks. I'll say two things. You know, number one, Mindfulness practices writ large, right, have helped me to bring more intentionality, uh, awareness, 
um, connection uh, and a sense of vitality into my Jewish practice. That's A. And B, right, I've been able through practice to encounter Judaism as a mindful path of living, right? Mm -hmm. So I'll say a little bit about both of those, you know. So first I'll say, you know, that uh, in the kind of first camp, you know, I was a, a kid who grew up praying my whole life, you know, until my little rebellion where I basically, you know, kind of cast Judaism away for a time until I came back on my own terms. Mostly in the communities where I was, you know, where I was praying, it was mostly a rote, rote activity, you know. There was a sense of like, we have an obligation to pray, so we pray, you know. Or, you know, there was also a social component, like we'll go to synagogue, we'll see our friends, they'll come over for Shabbat lunch, it'll be really nice, you know. Um, when I was a little kid, you know, the candy man would give us candy, you know, and, you know, we'd see our friends and we'd go outside and play games and stuff like that, you know. So it was like a congregating space, a social space, and a space for fulfilling religious obligation, you know, but there wasn't like a tremendous amount of like devotional energy, heartfelt energy, uh, or a sense necessarily that God's presence was palpably present in the act of prayer. Right? Um, and I remember, um, that really very soon after I started meditating in a Buddhist context at those New York insight sits, right? And because the skills you learn are portable, right? my prayer life suddenly, suddenly started to become like extremely, you know, extremely enriched. Mm -hmm. um, a, because I was actually able to stay moment by moment with the words of prayer because I was cultivating greater capacity to stay concentrated in the present moment. Right. But B, because, you know, in that act of being really present and luckily for me, and I realize this is a big barrier for a lot of people, but I understand what the prayers mean. Um, they're not foreign to me. I feel very at home in that world, you know, at least in terms of the language right, and the comprehension. So suddenly, you know, prayers that I'd said a million times by rote started to actually land in my tissues and in my heart in a different way. Mm -hmm. Now, it's like one thing to say, for example, right? about God, you know, you've loved us with this, this expansive, this great, you know, this immense love, you know, and I'd said those words a million times by rote, and it was always a nice idea, God really loves us, you know, with this really big love, you know, but massage that phrase into the soil of your heart when you're really like paying attention to your body in the present moment, and you are aware, for example, of the in-breath being the gift of the plant kingdom, Right? And your out-breath being a gift that you're then offering back. And you begin to sense that kind of mutuality in a very lived, direct way. And you suddenly feel like, wow, I am actually in a real palpable sense. Right, I'm living in this great web of love and relationship. That's a whole different experience. And that is made possible through practice, whether we're doing it in a Jewish framework or we're doing it in a secular context or in a Buddhist context. Just the skill of like really being embodied moment by moment, you know. And then kind of paying attention to these phenomena that are happening all the time through the prism of the words of prayer. Yeah. So that's one way in which like my prayer life was significantly enriched. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then I also came into the second camp, the second awareness, which is to say that, you know, actually that was prayer was, that's what the prayer was always meant to do, right? It was always meant to call our attention to the ways in which we live in this great web of loving relationship. You know, it was never just meant to be some sort of statement, just, you know, uttered by rote. And as we say in the rabbinic tradition, you know, from the lips outward without any inner intention, 
you know, and there are many, 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 many teachings in our tradition about prayer as a practice for focusing the mind and quickening the heart, you know, and awakening us into a direct experience of of being held in the embrace of of, of the divine, you know. Um, so I came to experience large portions of Jewish practice. I'm not going to say every single practice, you know, not every single passage in the Torah is pointing to some sort of a mindfulness practice or teaching, but Judaism itself, right, has a, a kind of mindful tradition or a mindful journey, you know, and instead of thinking of halakha as Jewish law, I think it's more consonant with the practice, with my own experience to think about it as like the Jewish spiritual path of, of awakening to God's presence in our lives. Beautiful. So really embodying the prayer. And I can also attest, I know I keep referencing this retreat we were just on, but it's very fresh. So my davening got exponentially deeper and higher in ways that, that was the, I didn't even think about that going into the retreat. Like it wasn't even on my mind, but it was like, you know, the Rebbe um, Menachem Mendel Schneerson said, every letter of Torah is infinitely deep and infinitely wide. And I actually had ex experiences like that. And so I definitely, I just want to give a testimonial to, to what Sam is saying. It sounds very esoteric, but it's very real and really em embodying Jewish prayer. I hope that, you know, this generation and further generations can really experience embodied prayer because it's so powerful and it's there and that's where it came from initially but it gets lost in the mind very often so I yeah said yeah it's kind of like you know the way that i often think about it is that we're trying to get through the back door mm -hmm. when it comes to working with the c door because you know when someone composed let's say um you know mode ani which was only composed about 500 years ago, actually, by one of the Kabbalists and and Sfat and Safed, but uh, draws from more ancient themes. You know, I don't think they like sat down and thought intellectually about like, okay, how am I going to compose a prayer that people can say when they wake up in the morning so that they can point themselves in the direction of gratitude? I se I sense, I believe that what happened was the person woke up one morning and they were just really filled with gratitude to be alive, you know? Like they experience themselves as like a lumpless hunk of matter. I mean, uh, sorry, a lifeless hunk of matter. And they woke up and they were like, wow, the whole world is streaming in. I'm alive. This is amazing. And then the words just kind of came out organically, naturally, probably because, you know, the Modi Manach Nulach prayer in the Amidah, right, which is in a different part of the prayer service, right? It was there already in that person's heart and mind and their consciousness. And so their way of expressing gratitude was just through the words that were already available to them. And they just translated them into first person singular, right? Like they had an experience and then the prayer speech or expression came directly out of that embodied experience. Our problem is that we have the testament to the experience mm -hmm. and through the testament, right? Through the verbal expression, we're now trying to get back to the experience. So we're kind of coming in through the back door, you know? So if people can have these experiences and mindfulness practice, and then connect them with the words of the prayer. It makes it easier to find your way back to the experience through the words of the prayer themselves. Absolutely. I love it. It reminds me of a Baal Shem Tov story, which we'll, we'll tell later. Another thing I wanted you to share a little bit about, if you can, is you have this beautiful blessing practice that you do. And I was curious on a couple of things. Maybe you could share a little bit about it, but where do you incorporate that into your davening or morning practice? And what's a little thing people can take? Because it's very sweet. 
Yeah, thanks. I just want to say first and foremost that the inspiration for that practice comes from my colleague and friend who I mentioned before, Rabbi Jordan Ben-Dadapel. He and I both have had this experience of, of practicing in Buddhist traditions and practicing in a Jewish uh, context, you know. And one of the kind of uh, traditional Buddhist practices that comes directly from the Buddha is what's called metta, or loving kindness practice. You know, in that practice, basically, you you send wishes for well-being and for freedom from suffering to yourself, to others, really ultimately to all beings, right? And that very act itself of, of wishing others well and wishing for their well-being and their happiness and for their relief from suffering can really, um, in my experience, um, open my heart in a very profound way and help me to feel that I can meet the suffering in my life with a greater degree of buoyancy and equanimity and calm. Uh, and that kind of a heart also, a heart that's really like empty of or uh, free of any kind of like free uh, of uh, ill will, right? Is also a, um, uh, a heart that supports deep penetrating insight, right? It helps the mind more readily to settle and get concentrated and look into the nature of phenomena. So that practice is, is really rich and really compelling. You know, and I do it on the go in some formulation all the time, you know, but uh, Jordan uh, beautifully, I think, recognized that the priestly blessing itself that comes directly out of the Torah, right, could be uh, understood as a, a blessing practice that's really about cultivating this kind of, of love and all of these kind of qualities that promote a kind of opening of heart and a settling of mind and a sense of real connection and kinship with all other beings, you know. And the way that it works basically is A, right, that the, the priests for millennia now have been trying to bless people with these, with these qualities, either in synagogue or in the temple. They say in the blessing, when they're blessing people, right, that they've been commanded to do so with love, right, mm -hmm. or out of love. Mm -hmm. You know, and I often wonder to myself, like, how many of the priests who bless people in the synagogue actually, like, feel loving toward all of the other people mm -hmm. in the synagogue, right? <laughs> As opposed to like having this, you know, acrimonious history with Joe Schwartz or, you know, Jill Goldman or whatever. The case. These are just names. They're not real people, right? You know, it got me thinking as well about how we can each in our own lives embody our priestly nature, right? If, uh, because the way the Hasidic tradition understands the priest is the priest is the person who embodies divine love, mm -hmm. transcendent divine love, right? And then doles it out like unreservedly upon the people. Out of that question, and I think that was a similar question motivating my friend Jordan, you know, Jordan developed a kind of loving kindness practice out of this native Jewish blessing, right? And the blessing has these six um, qualities, right? Because it says, May the presence, which is how I understand, our name for God, right? The timeless presence. May the timeless presence, you know, bless you and keep you safe. So right there, we find these two qualities, right? Blessed, mm -hmm. safe, blessed and safe. And then the next phrase in the blessing, shine his face or countenance upon you and grant you uh, grant you uh, love mm -hmm. or favor right? or grace. You know, and out of that, out of that uh, blessing, Jordan extrapolated the two qualities of luminous and love, right? Luminous and love. You know, you can have this sense of like being kind of full of, of inner light that just radiates out from the core of your being, you know, and the kind of love that's being described here 
etymologically speaking with that word chen, v'yifuneka, right, is a kind of unconditional love freely given, you know. And then uh, the final phrase, yisa yudhevavhepanavelechavichuneka, may yudhevavhe lift God's countenance or face toward you and grant you peace, right, can be understood as um, kind of embodying the two qualities of happiness and uh, and peace. Uh, because etymologically speaking, when the Torah talks about God lifting God's countenance towards you, that's basically a way of saying God's smiling at you. Mm. Right? When we smile, our whole face is lifted, as it were. Right? You don't need to go to a plastic surgeon and get a face lift. You just need to smile. <laughs> you know, and uh, this quality of, of peace in our tradition of shalom, right, also uh, accords with the word shlemut, which means wholeness, right? A sense of being really integrated, whole, you know, uh, whole with yourself, whole within yourself, you know, it comes with a sense of, of peacefulness and contentment. You know, so we have these six qualities, blessed, a sense of being really flush with the blessings of this life, safe, a sense of really being secure and relaxed in your own being, and not being on guard or hypervigilant, uh, luminous, kind of, you know, radiant from the inside out, you know, loved, really unconditionally held in, in the embrace of someone's care and love, you know, happy, you know, this kind of sense of real kind of contentment, um, with your lot and what you have that isn't dependent on external circumstances. And then finally, peaceful, you know, a sense of like wholeness and being at peace. So uh, the way the practice works basically is that we call, for each of these qualities, we call upon our memory right? and we invoke in our memory and call to mind a time in our life when we felt each of these qualities. And it doesn't even have to be like a big expression of each of these qualities. It can just be something small, a time when you felt, let's take that first quality, blessed, right? Maybe for me, I go to a place uh, at a retreat center one time where I was eating mindfully and I swallowed my food and I paid attention to the act of swallowing. And just right there, I just felt such a sense of, of blessing. I felt this sense that like everything that I need, all of the conditions for my well-being are present. Just simple act, you know, we do it hundreds of times a day, thousands of times a day, you know, but that particular moment really kind of like brought me into that place. So I think of that experience and I allow the... Uh, quality to fill my whole consciousness and being, you know, until I begin to feel the actual physical sensations that go along with that feeling. Right? And then I send a blessing for that quality, either to, you know, myself, or a benefactor, someone who wishes for my well being and happiness in a kind of uncomplicated way, you know, or a loved one, or a neutral person, the kind of person that I see, you know, all the time, they're there in my kind of sphere of vision, but I don't really, really acknowledge or see them, you know, like uh, the mail carrier or the, you know, the checkout person, you know, at the at the grocery store. Yeah. And then finally, the, uh, you know, eventually a difficult person also. We can kind of grow our muscles to include even the difficult person in our circle of care. And I go like that through each of the qualities, you know, again, calling to mind a time when I felt it. Uh, creating conditions so that the actual feeling can infuse my body and mind. And then I say, may I feel this quality or may you feel, you know, may you feel blessed, may so-and-so feel blessed, may all beings feel blessed. You know? And to answer your question about when I do this practice, Saul, so I try to, to meditate every every morning and every evening. And often in the morning, I'll start my meditation practice by saying the blessing over Torah study. Uh, because one way that I understand Jewish meditation practice is that we're opening ourselves up to receive the inherent wisdom that comes down into us through our own consciousness, you know, into our mind. And uh, part of that blessing, if you take a look in a traditional, you know, prayer book is, is the priestly blessing. So when I get to that section, 
right, which comes after the blessing for Torah, adjacent to it, you know, appended to it. I actually do this practice for a couple of moments, you know, and the more you do the practice, the easier it is to just kind of land in these qualities fairly quickly. At this point, I can really just even bring the word to mind and I immediately feel the rush of the sensation in my body. And then I go on with the rest of my meditation practice. But that's generally when I do it each morning. You know, there have been periods where I've dedicated my whole meditation practice of whatever it is, 45 minutes, an hour, an hour and a half, whatever it is, you know, to doing just this practice. Mm -hmm. There have been retreats where I've done just this practice, mm -hmm. you know. But uh, right now, in terms of where I am right now, I try to do a little bit of it every day, you know, for at least a couple of minutes, you know. It's beautiful. And it's a beautiful practice. And you can even do it in real time as you're moving about your day, which. Exactly. I, I... As you're seeing people on the street, you know, I was just I was just doing this actually when I was at the market before, you know, and suddenly, you know, the people who were strangers and you didn't pay attention to them, you know, suddenly there's a sense of kinship and connection, you mm -hmm. know, and a recognition of your shared humanity and how we're all in this mess of suffering together, you know, and all need to help each other and reach out to each other and be kind to one another. So it's just a really, really powerful and transformative practice. I'll share a quick, quick story. You know, you had talked about blessing the people at your local supermarket and the, you know, the clerks and cashiers. And so one of the days of our meditation, I, I thought of a particular person that I see quite often in, you know, we chatted maybe for a few seconds here and there. I did this whole, you know, meta practice. And the next time I saw her, she talked to me for five minutes about how she loves her customers and she loves her job. And it was like, wow, this is a palpable confirmation of this practice landing. Yeah, because you were more receptive and open, I imagine, right? And she felt that energy coming from you and was willing to really you know, share of her own experience. That's my sense, you know, for how this practice works. Yeah, it was beautiful. Very beautiful practice. Okay. So as we're, as we're starting to wrap up here, talk a little bit about uh, the IJS and in, in terms of its mission and your mission within that. Yeah, thanks. The Institute for Jewish Spirituality has been around since uh, 1999. And our mission is to really uh, revitalize Jewish life and create a more just, compassionate, and wise Jewish community. Uh, by teaching and disseminating Jewish spiritual practices grounded in mindfulness that foster, you know, spiritual transformation on the individual and collective level. We started off back in the day training clergy in particular because there was a recognition that the spiritual leaders of the Jew American Jewish community really had very thin spiritual lives and you can't give what you don't have, right? Um, and over the years, our work has expanded and we now work with the general community across the age um, span, uh, you know, really folks in their early adulthood through really through end of life. Uh, we have free offerings that are available to the whole Jewish community, uh, like our daily online meditation group, our Monday uh, Jewish yoga studio, you know, a suite of online courses. Uh, we run groups of spiritual practice by affinity. We have a monthly Jew of color led meditation group. We have a meditation group for folks who identify as LGBTQ+. Then we have our more immersive programs that are, you know, either online or, you know, 18-month retreat-based immersive programs, you know. So there's kind of something for everyone. You can kind of just dip your feet into one of our free offerings, you know, and kind of drop in as you wish. You can subscribe for a multi-week online course that runs anywhere from four weeks to eight weeks. 
you know, you can participate in our clergy cohort, which is an 18-month immersive program or Jewish meditation um, deepening program, which you're in right now and which will you know, then kind of open up into a Jewish mindfulness meditation teacher training program for the alumni of that program. You know, we're launching our, our new spiritual direction program, which is going to be an 18-month cohort program. And that first cohort is already assembled and getting started with uh, my wonderful colleague and teacher, Rabbi Miriam Klotz. So there's really something for everyone. Some, some of the offerings are more kind of about personal spiritual enrichment. Some of them are more about, you know, professional growth around, uh, you know, spiritual practice and shifting communal culture. But there's really kind of a wide array in between. And so I'll invite you to check out our, our offerings. The most kind of, I think, accessible uh, one that's coming up soon is going to be our Elul offering, you know, as a way to prepare spiritually for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and the whole high holiday season. And that actually uh, is going to be a program that can be accessed online beginning on Sunday, August 13th and running through Friday, September 15th. Um, it's a combination of written material, live sessions that run every week, regular kind of email resources, all kind of built and constructed around Rabbi Alan Liu's book, uh, This Is Real and You Are Completely Unprepared, uh, which is really kind of a, a mindful guide to entering into the high holidays in a really deep way and really taking full advantage of, of the season that's you know coming up uh, in the fall. I love it. One clarifying question about that. You said your clergy cohort, just to be clear, you're not ordaining clergy, you're taking clergy. No. Yeah, exactly. We take uh, ordained clergy and Jewish spiritual leaders in a variety of settings, and we, we bring them on retreat four times and provide really high-touch support to help them, A, cultivate a, a self-care toolkit, be really deep in their own spiritual lives and see then bring what they learn into their communities to transform the spiritual tenor of their community. I love it. So, so needed and perfect timing. Yeah. And if any clergy are listening, we're going to be opening our next cohort for applications in the spring of 2024 uh, with the next cohort launching in January of 2025. So you can join our newsletter uh, if you go to our website, www.jewishspirituality.org, and uh, you'll get more information about that. And anyone who wants to learn more about our programs can check out our website as well and see what's there. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been thorough, and there's so much more I want to ask you and unpack, but I do think that we have to honor our listeners' time as well and their capacity to absorb information. So I want to ask you one final question, which I ask all my guests here on the Holy Sparks podcast, which is, Rabbi Sam. What does the Jewish world need now most and why? Yeah, thanks. Such a powerful question to ask. Yeah, I would say really, you know, two things um, come to mind right now. You know, first is that as a community, I think we really need to be able to uncover the spiritual roots of our tradition and use them to cultivate a kind of greater degree of spirituality, both at the individual and communal level. And that's because, you know, with all of the contemporary crises, whether it's the you know, splintering of our polity and the collapse of American democracy, you know, or growing populism or growing anti-Semitism and racism or climate change, you know, we have every reason to believe that uh, in the de decades to come, there's going to be more human suffering and more conflict, right? 
and for the Jewish community, not only to be able to survive that, but thrive and be a force for good in the world, you know, we are going to need to have a really strong rooting in our spiritual lives and in our spiritual tradition, because all of the contemporary research shows that a healthy dose of spirituality is really essential for resilience. And we're going to need that in significant spades. The second thing I think is really, really important right now for the Jewish community is really to focus on, on belonging and inclusion. You know, as the Jewish community has become so so much more diverse, and as the research is unfolding, you know, we're hearing more and more and more from people who've traditionally been marginalized, whether they're Jews of color, folks who identify as LGBTQ, you know, folks with disabilities, people who are Sephardi and Mizrahi, right, that they just don't feel welcome in the mainstream kind of Ashkenazi American Jewish community. And I think our practice can help us with that too, you know, in supporting us to really recognize our implicit biases, you know, decenter from our own experience, you know, if we're, you know, white and privileged and really center the experiences of those on the margins in a way that can ultimately be really affirming and can help us to create a more, you know, vibrant, diverse, resilient, and celebratory Jewish community. Oh man, beautiful. Well, I want to thank you for your time. I know you're very busy and that you have a lot going on and I really I want to honor everything that you've said and shared. And I want to leave you with a blessing that Hashem should bless you with continued receptive students and people who encounter you in your work, that they will be willing to trust you to open up to all of the depth of your training and your knowledge and your experience in and around the field of Judaism, mindfulness and meditation practice, and that the Institute for Jewish Spirituality should continue to thrive and bless people and bless clergy with what is should be the beginning of ordination, which is Jewish spiritual practice and grounding and self-care. And that all of those gifts that you're giving the community should come back to you many fold. So thank you for your time. Amen. Amen. And uh, may you, may you, uh, you know, feel deeply grounded in your practice and your relationship with the divine and uh, make that all manifest through this beautiful podcast and benefit so many people, you know, to come out of suffering and discover, you know, the, the core kind of spiritual roots of Judaism and uh, use their Judaism as a force for good in the world. Amen. Can hear its own. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of the Holy Sparks Podcast. I'm your host, Saul Kay. Please subscribe to the channel. It helps us more than you know. Drop a review. Share this with friends and family, people you think would enjoy the content. And we'll see you on the next episode.